Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. <laughs> so I <laughs> yeah sorry we so, should not have all that laughing on hello welcome to another episode of the weeds on the vox media podcast network i'm matthew iglesias here with sarah cliff and we have ezra klein back on the weeds Welcome Hello. back, Ezra. Thank you. How is it being a parent? I, I never know how to answer that question. Because <laughs> I feel like what people always want to say is that it's very, I feel like there's like a like a cultural thing where you got to say it's really tiring and that's true. But then also, if you start like gushing about your kid, nobody really wants to hear that. So I, I feel like I'd it's like a, to hear a you question gush about your kids. Their kids are good. You can. All right. Well, we'll I'll, I'll do some gushing with you later. Right. I like being a parent. Cool. Okay. Welcome back. Good. I like it. Um, Medicare skin- for All is still here. <laughs> <laughs> Still a thing. Yeah, everything has changed. They they added some. They added benefits. some long term care while you were out. But more to the point, Senate process. What people well, really I've been want to thrilled talk about. about this. Yeah, Th- this is what I've wanted to talk about. Um, so I, I think today's show is a bit about some Medicare for all and different institutions. Like on the one hand, how would you actually pass it or even something like it? And then on the other hand. Uh, what would happen if you tried to implement it and, and you had to do that over some of the existing institutions in, in American healthcare and politics and media. But but to begin on, on this side, over the last couple of weeks, uh, there's been more attention, and certainly in this primary, to issues of filibuster reform than in any that I've seen before. So Elizabeth Warren came out as a first senator to actually say we should abolish the filibuster for senator who's running for president currently to say that. Uh, you've had Beto O'Rourke come out against a filibuster. Jay Inslee, the governor of Washington, come out against a filibuster. Pete Buttigieg has talked about getting rid of the filibuster. Um, Bernie Sanders was defending the filibuster and has now come forward with a, another uh, position that, that I want to talk about because I think it's pretty interesting. Right. But I wanted to set up a little bit of, of background on this because when I obsess about the filibuster, I think sometimes it seems weird and idiosyncratic. But I think it's really important to understanding American politics right now to understand how different the Senate works than it did when Medicare itself passed. And so when you try to figure out how many filibusters there were at any given time, it's a little bit hard because they don't like you don't like kind of press the filibuster button. But the sort of normal way of counting it is you look at how many times the Senate had to vote on cloture because cloture is how you shut down a filibuster. So how many times the Senate in a given session voted on cloture? And in the 60s, so the decade, not just Medicare passed, but the Great Society passed, a lot of things going on, big, big decade for doing things in the Senate. There was an average of five cloture votes per Congress, just five. 
So in in each of the two year congressional sessions, um, on average, it, the the Senate had to go to try to shut down a filibuster five times. Uh, in the eighties, that rose; it went up to twenty seven times per Congress. And so far in this decade, it is a hundred and fifty five times per Congress. So the filibuster has gone from being something that was used rarely and and often quite horribly uh, in the in that sixties era is often used to stop progress on civil rights bills, but it's, it's gone from being something used rarely in a fifty one vote. Senate to express really intense opposition. Um, in fact, there's this amazing letter that might that Lyndon Johnson's Senate head writes him after the 1964 election, where he talks about how he thinks Medicare is going to pass with 55 votes. Right. And that's a crazy thing to say now. Like nothing <laughs> can pass with 55 votes, but 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 back then they thought it could. And by the way, back then you needed 67 votes to stop a filibuster. Um, and now it's just like a 60 vote threshold on everything. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, as recently as 2003, a substantial Medicare bill passed with fewer than 60 votes. Um, you, you know, so I think it's important for people to both understand that, like, there has been a long, steady increase in filibustering that's very detectable in the 1980s, but also that literally everything in the Senate requires 60 votes is a very new precedent. Like, I'm kind of an old guy, but like, I'm, I'm not that old. Like, I was here working, covering a vote in which, you know, George W. Bush needed a couple of Democratic defections to get a bill through, not like massive, inconceivable kinds of, of, of defections. And it's a fundamental change. And and to me, it's it's odd, actually, how small C conservative incumbent senators are. About this, I mean, I I understand all the sort of like smart political science takes about why senators kind of like this filibustering, but you never hear anybody say my take on American politics is that the quality of governance in the United States Congress has been much better over the past ten years than at any previous time in our history. I mean, somebody could say that. I just I, I have never heard anybody say that, right? And yet the routine 60 vote filibustering of everything has only existed in this very recent period. It's not to say you could fix everything by getting rid of it, but to me it's like a at least like a like a prima facie case that this is not something we should cling to as like one of our most distinguished traditions. There's no past time in which major problems were tackled on the basis of the rules as they are currently uh, situated. So when people say like we cannot tackle major problems in the future this way, like I, th- that just seems like obviously true to me in a way that it's even challenging sometimes to to, to argue with about. I, I mean, but I, I just as a journalistic point of view, like I I can't drive home like how little support I have detected from. Democratic Party members of the United States Senate for these procedural changes, even as they've kind of filtered in from presidential candidates. Yeah, I think I'm right in the middle of reading um, an entire book on the filibuster for an episode of The Impact that we're working on um, from Greg Warwo. And I think one of the things that has driven home to me, I, I am a little less versed in filibuster history than you are, Ezra, but is how a lot of these institutions that are just taken as like, well, this is the way the Senate works and like has worked are really idiosyncratic. Like, they really come down to, like, a few decisions that were made in kind of, like, because someone wanted something and that these things that are often, like, seen as these time-value traditions, like, the reason the Senate works this way is because they're a great deliberative body, 
are are not really etched in stone as they're often viewed. And, and I think that is kind of, you know, when you talk to a lot of senators about, you know, why keep the filibuster, a lot of it like is, well, you know, this is the way we do things. But I don't know, maybe, Ezra, you could talk a little bit to kind of, um, you know, where these rules come from. I'd also love for you, you were writing on the site about Bernie's proposal that is not eliminating the filibuster, but kind of eliminating the filibuster. I'd love for you to kind of spell out like Bernie's view in all of this. Yeah. So there, so there are two things we're, uh, to talk about here. One is this history of, of what the filibuster is and, and how it becomes what it is today. And then the other uh, is also relates to what Matt was saying about whether or not there actually is any support for for getting rid of it in, in, in the U.S. Senate as it currently exists. And I, I think it's a long shot, but I do think it's possible and no more of a long shot than a lot of the other things like Medicare for all that we're talking about. Um, and if you can't get rid of it, then you're not going to get these other things. Well, done. I mean, these I, are I all conjoined. That is my core. Yeah, these are these are very twinned questions. So very quick filibuster history, because uh, it's in some ways kind of funny. I think people believe that what happened is that at some point early in American history, people sat down and they said, we want the Senate to be very deliberative. So what we're going to do is create this ability to just talk about things forever with no ability to cut off debate. And that is not in any way what happened. So what happened was uh, the Senate had a very messy rule book early in its history. Aaron Burr kills Alexander Hamilton in a duel and like has to <laughs> go on the run. But before he does, he comes back and gives this very famous speech uh, in the Senate. And he talks about how great the Senate is and contemporary accounts say he like moves senators to tears. But one of the things he says in the speech, and, and this is coming from Sarah Binder's work on the filibuster, uh, the political scientist, is that the Senate's rulebook needs to be cleaned up. If it's going to be as great and central an institution as Burr, the vice president, and so, of course, the presiding officer of the Senate wants it to become and tells it it can become, it needs a better rulebook. And so there are all these recommendations made, and one of them is to eliminate what then looks like a, a redundant provision called – it's called the previous question motion. And it's basically a way of shutting down the previous question. So now you don't have it. Um, and nobody thinks much of it. And then some decades later, somebody realizes you can't shut down the previous question. Like you can't shut down what ha what people are talking about. And that is when the filibuster emerges. For a long time, there's no way to stop a filibuster at all. What we now call cloture doesn't exist. It doesn't exist until 1917 when Woodrow Wilson uh, convinces the Senate to, to add it. So people can do whatever they want. The only way to stop them is through basically like exhausting them or some kind of trickery. My favorite trickery story is Senator Thomas Gore, I believe that's the name, was blind and so he was doing a filibuster about something or other, and he had some allies, but his ally had actually left the room. So Gore was like exhausted from talking for so long and threw to his ally, not realizing because oh, he was blind no. that he had left the room. This and then the terrible. majority of the Senate was like, ha, took the vote and it was over. <laughs> so like that, it used to be this procedural warfare. Over time, it's not been that. We got cloture. Cloture used to be uh, two thirds of the Senate in 75. It was brought down to three fifths, which is where we get the current 60. There's some other changes made. But the other thing that I would say on this to, to connect it to the question of the present is that the filibuster has been strengthening and weakening in recent years. The way it's been strengthening is it is used all the time on everything. The norms in which you don't use it except for extraordinary circumstances have totally fallen. But the way it's been weakening is that the Senate has been carving into it exceptions. And the really big exception is this thing called budget reconciliation. Budget reconciliation is created in 1974. It's just meant to clean up the budget process so that when uh, Congress passes spending, it's more able to 
bring that spending in line with the earlier past budget goals. And the idea is that you'll have this very quick, like fast track process to do this budget cleanup. So part of that is it's protected from filibuster. There is then a steady effort to expand reconciliation. George W. Bush is a big innovator here. He puts things like tax cuts and drilling in the Alaskan uh, uh, wilderness for, for oil into it. And then it, it expands even further, a little bit under Obama and then a lot under under Donald Trump. But the big thing about reconciliation is it has these limits. One is that you can't increase the deficit outside of the 10-year window, which is why Republicans keep passing tax cuts that have big expirations after 10 years because the taxes blow up the deficit. But the idea is if they just disappear, well, then they don't. Um, right. And so you're just doing this weird trickery to put it into reconciliation because it wouldn't survive the filibuster otherwise. And then the other is that Anything in reconciliation has to be judged to actually be about um, budgetary policy, spending and, and, and revenues, not about just policy. And it even says it can't just change the budget incidentally to its policy goals. And so here's Sanders' view. Um, Sanders came out and uh, in, in the past couple of weeks, as he has at other times, although not all other times, as a filibuster defender. He said he's not crazy about getting rid of it. He said he doesn't want to be shoving things down the minority's throat, that minority rights are important. He said that Donald Trump wants to get rid of the filibuster. So, you know, that should give you some uh, that should make you careful. Right. But a lot of people pointed out um, that he's not going to get any of his agenda passed without the filibuster, not breaking up banks without the filibuster, passing Medicare for all, um, none of it. And so he came out with a, an idea that has been proposed before by Ted Cruz and Rand Paul, which is what he wants to do is use budget reconciliation. And when the parliamentarian says this or that is against the rules and can't be done through budget reconciliation, what Bernie Sanders is going to do is tell his vice president, who's the actual presiding officer of the Senate, ignore the parliamentarian and say it does fit under reconciliation. Like in the way the rules are written, the vice president doesn't have to listen to the parliamentarian or the presiding officer technically doesn't. And he could just do what he wants in interpreting the rules. People don't, in general, like this theory because it creates this Calvin Ball-style approach to the rules in the Senate, and you right. should you have to keep doing it instead of just changing the rules once in a principled way. But in theory, if you had 51 votes who would accept the product of that process, which is a very open question, you could do it that way. You could just have the, the vice president say, well, reconciliation can have anything in it. I think it all fits under the bird rule. And, and there you go. So that's Sanders' view right now. You're not going to change the filibuster, but what you're going to do is take all the limits off of reconciliation by telling the vice president to always rule in your favor, no matter what the, the actual rules say. I was a little surprised that he phrased it that way, because to me, I think there was like a reasonable argument that what they want to do with Medicare for all, like, should be reconciliation eligible, like under the rules and like a non-Calvin Ball, non crazy kind of way, right? Like the big healthcare entitlements are like a traditional reconciliation topic. And obviously there would be taxes in Medicare for all, but like that's a very traditional reconciliation topic. And to me, the, the whole thing was was a, was a little bit strange. You didn't phrase it exactly the way I should be. I mean, we I, I don't have a statement in front of me. But the problem with that is that reconciliation runs on provisions, not bills. Sure. It doesn't knock bills out. It can knock individual provisions out. And so the the reason it's so hard is that they cut holes in the bill like piece by piece. Yeah. And so you can't say the whole thing is like, like Medicare is about the budget because they'll say, yeah, but abolishing private insurance isn't about the budget. And they'll just take out that part but leave the rest in and it like falls in on itself. 
Maybe. I, I don't know. I, I I would love to know someday get like the TikTok of like how Bernie Sanders, who in 2013 was calling for abolishing the filibuster, like came to say he wasn't, then came under a lot of criticism, then came out with this reconciliation story. Like I, I would love to see like inside his campaign what was going on. But but just step back a, a little bit from, from the details of that statement. The big thing that's going on here, right, is that like Medicare for all is like it's it's fake news right like there's no this is like it's it's not happening right and not only is it not happening but like no work is being done to make it happen a lot of work is being done right now by many people to make Bernie Sanders president of the United States right like a million separate individuals what do you, wait what do you mean no work is being done to make it happen like there was a, like long there's a lot of political organizing. There's a bill. Well, there's a bill, but like there had like been what a, would count as work. But so like there had been a bill, right? A, a bill was rolled out, and the bill had some co-sponsors, and there were also some like big obvious questions about the bill. And that happened when, like, over a year ago, 2017, right? 2017, right? And since that time, none of the questions that skeptics had about that bill have been organized, you know, answered, right? And there's been plenty of time to work on it. But, like, nobody has tried to answer those skeptical questions. Um, no new co-sponsors have been added since that time. And, in fact, the opposite. For the purposes of the presidential campaign, a lot of the people who signed on as co-sponsors to that bill were people who were sort of known at the time to be running for president. And they were kind of trying to, like, get good with the Bernie wing of the party, maybe thinking that he would bow out from a race because he, he was so old. Uh, but what's happened since then as the campaign has emerged is that a, like— new wedge has been introduced in the form of, well, do you really want to abolish private insurance? And a number of the people who had signed on to the bill, like Cory Booker, have gone a little bit squishy on that key point. And critically, the people from the Sanders camp, for the understandable reason that what they're trying to do is win a presidential election, have not like tried to bring everybody into the tent, right? In the Like, when you're legislating, right, you're like, hey, Corey, Kamala, Kristen, like, we're all friends here. But, like, yeah, instead, we'll figure this out. We they, can work they, on they it. They are driving the wedge, right? Being yeah. like, oh, you're not a real Medicare for All supporter. So, like, that's all fine, right? Like, if you truly want, like, the real Medicare for All vision, like, yes, like, Bernie is your only true friend. And there's, like, two Senate votes for this bill, which is great. And like maybe he'll be president and there's like two votes. And also they haven't done like work on the tax and revenue side. And I think when you talk to people, I don't even think there's like disagreement between me and them about this, right? Like the strategy is to A, win the presidential nomination, B, beat Donald Trump, become president, and then just approach healthcare starting with a high bid. Right. Like that's that's all that's going on here. And like the filibuster thing, it just plays into that in the sense that like many moderate legislators like to have the filibuster because then it lets them just duck these questions. Right. I mean, and that was going on. That's what was going on with Republicans with their Obamacare repeal. Right. Like Ted Cruz is pushing this idea that Bernie has talked about a little bit of like, well, let's just overrule the parliamentarian. Mitch McConnell, you know, you could say for maybe he really appreciates Senate rules or maybe he did not want to pass a bill that would lead to millions of people getting uninsured and saying, you know, no, we're going to respect their traditions of the Senate. 
is one way to get around this, like, ducking Obamacare repeal. I mean, I think that, like, the way I see this relationship between the filibuster and Medicare for all is do Democrats want Medicare for all badly enough that they would change the rules in a way that could become very disadvantageous to them down the line? Like, are they jazzed enough about this Medicare for all policy to let Republicans pass different policies when they are in power? And I think that's a place where, you know, when we've talked about priorities and how those might be different between the different candidates, like, that's something you might get a different answer from, like, a Senator, from a Senator Sanders than you would, like, I don't know, a Senator Booker, who might not be, like, as jazzed about Medicare for all to, like, take those risks of, like, what the other side might do with this new sort of power. And, yeah. But, I mean, in this case, like, so back at the Affordable Care Act, right, you know, Democrats had— 59 to 60 votes at different times in that in that process in, in their caucus. And I would say, though, that there was clearly a majority in the Senate that was quite enthusiastic about, like, the basic Affordable Care Act template, right? And they really were working to, like, nail down two or three more votes and get things passed. And they really did have mixed feelings about, like, the, they really wished they could just pass the damn bill which not having a filibuster would let them do. But then they had a lot of concerns about getting rid of the filibuster and the implications of that. So they were like torn, right? Whereas I feel in Medicare for all, like there's no mixed opinions. Like it is true that many senators have doubts about majority rule Senate, but also almost no senators are enthusiastic for the underlying process. And like conversation on this topic often immediately leaps to the most conservative Democrats, to like Joe Manchin, John Tester, stuff like that. But like you got to think about, like, Chris Coons, Dianne Feinstein, right? Like, there's all these people from blue safe states who just have never indicated not, – and not even the accusation, like, oh, they're just faking it. Like, they're not claiming to be for Medicare for all. They're just like, they don't want to do it. And and the whole thing seems like a, like a, a fascinating issue in the presidential primary, but like a non-topic in Congress. So I want to pull this a little bit out of the details of Medicare for all, because my, my point on the filibuster, the reason I cover it and think it's important, is it doesn't matter what you're talking about. It doesn't matter if you're talking about Medicare for all or Medicare for America or Obamacare or a climate change bill, or let's say you would like to get campaign finance, like you'd like to do campaign finance reform, or maybe you'd right. like to pass a DREAM Act or immigration reform. Or like Literally raise the minimum anything. wage Raise the minimum cent. wage by, <laughs> by one cent. It doesn't <laughs> matter. It's all filibusterable. Yes. Um, there are some things you can do with the reconciliation. You could pass a big tax cut bill, right? If you look at like the Kamala ha- the Kamala Harris Gain Act, or no, hers is Lift, right? Lift. The Lift Act, which is her big EITC expansion. I think you could probably do that through reconciliation. But in general, a vast amount of the agenda for either party would go through through the filibuster. And so my point here is that whatever you think about any one of these individual bills, the threshold question for any single, like, anybody running for president, Republican or Democrat, is what do you plan to do about the filibuster? Because you're not going to have the 60 votes that Obama had for whatever it was, nine months. Like, that's not, no, nobody has that Senate map coming anywhere, like even approaching 60 votes. So what are you going to do about the filibuster? Now, I agree, Matt, that there isn't currently a majority to, to get rid of it. But 
I mean, you and I, you remember back to like the 2005 when we started writing about this. And this was when Republicans were trying to get rid of the filibuster on judicial nominees. And you said, you know, you were part of the the cadre that said get rid of it everywhere. And slowly in that period of time, I would say the Overton window on this has shifted enormously. Right. Like it was really weird to talk about filibuster reform, but then it got less and less weird. Obama was a fan of the filibuster. By the time he left, he was a critic of it. I've been Rhodes quoted in my piece saying that like any Democrat should get rid of the filibuster entirely. Like the Obama wing of the party, their conclusion was like no filibuster anymore. The Democrats did get 51 votes, including people like Dianne Feinstein, to substantially restrict the filibuster in 2013. They took it off of lower level judicial nominees. They took it off of executive branch nominations. Then as soon as Republicans came in, they got rid of the filibuster um, to pass on Supreme Court nominees to to, to pass Gorsuch. Reconciliation has been expanding. So I want to push a bit that on the one hand, a lot of senators, they are nervous about getting rid of it. And, And particularly Democrats now, they had the Obama experience. It made them more friendly to getting rid of it. And now the Trump experience where they were reminded of why they they enjoy having it. Minorities tend to become very caught up on being able to obstruct rather than govern because they're in the minority. Either side, we need to flip to caring more about being able to govern well than being able to obstruct effectively. And I think the, the incentives of governing well are better incentives. But I don't think this isn't moving. And I do think that the issue here and the reason I, I'm so intent on keep, keeping it at the forefront of the way I cover the campaign is that almost all the legislative discussion we're having is meaningless in light of the filibuster. So if candidates don't at least have a theory of what they're going to try to do to get rid of it, right, that, that they're going to try to get people on board for it, then it's like all this policy we're talking about, unless you're just coming out with policy that is just budget policy, so we should just be debating the EITC bills, it's not clear what you're doing. Yes. To the extent that a person actually wants to see majority rule voting in the Senate, like which I do, and which is why I was like saying Democrats should take a dive back in 2005 when Republicans were in the majority, it would be better to focus this conversation not on left-wing like troll concepts that are universally despised by Democratic members of Congress and that they want an excuse to not vote for, but actually focus on the party's mainstream agenda. Like the the minimum wage is a great case in point, right? Like all the Democrats that I'm aware of support some kind of minimum wage increase, even as they like bicker about what it is. And it's unquestionably not eligible for reconciliation under anybody's theory that I've ever heard. And like they just can't pass it now, right? And like organizing around that topic If we are going to deliver a minimum wage increase to the American people, like we need to operate on a majority rules process, like I think that could get it done, right? Medicare for all combines like a procedural move that Democrats are uncomfortable with, with a substantive measure that Democrats are also uncomfortable with, and just sort of guarantees failure of this process. And And I understand the like internal logic of particularly how Sanders came around to the statement that that he did. But it's a little bit, to me, of an irrelevancy in that specific context. Whereas like there actually is stuff that eliminating the filibuster could unlock, right? Where like there really is democratic consensus, particularly this sort of political process reforms that that House Democrats were passing. Because the whole point of that was that these are things that Democrats think will help them win elections in the future. Like they would really like to see that 
become. Well, and the whole point of that, in some ways, that like you want to make majority majorities able to exercise political power. Right. Electoral right? Like, majority whole, should exercise sovereignty. Uh, yes. And so like the whole thing fits together. This is, by the way, Pete Buttigieg's argument for why he would do this stuff first. Right. And I think it, that he made on my podcast. And I think that's a good argument. Also an argument he made on the weeds. Damn it. Um, <laughs> but also like it's the leadership's bill. Right. You, you know what I mean? Like that that's a key point. Right. Like th- there's a difference between something like that H.R. 1 package where, again, like the reason it's H.R. 1 is like this is what Nancy Pelosi and the committee chair and everybody else decided they want to lead with. And Senate Democrats, I think, agree with them that that's a good package. But they have also talked themselves into a position where they couldn't possibly ever make it happen. And like that's the that's the the leverage point. I don't know. Take a break. Take a break. Take a break. Yeah. Let's talk about Saskatchewan, which I think is much more relevant. Yeah. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. So we're going to talk about Saskatchewan. And the reason we are going to talk about Saskatchewan is I think they are actually a really interesting... um, Sorry, for those of us who are not Canadian, what is Saskatchewan? (laughs) Saskatchewan is a province um, in Canada where, where I grew up. And I think looking at the history of Canadian Medicare is actually really instructive and helpful for the moment we are right now, where one of the debates we're having around the Bernie plan is... How do you actually implement it? Are healthcare interests just so entrenched? And is it just so difficult to move to this new system where the government runs healthcare that it would just all be impossible? And this is something David Brooks wrote about in a column a few weeks ago where he described Medicare for all as this impossible dream. And he said, you know, you look at Canada, like everyone there loves Medicare for all. Canada can have Medicare for all, but they are so different than where we are in the United States right now. Um, So I started doing some digging into the history of Canadian Medicare, and um, I didn't – 
I don't think this is super widely known. I think Matt knew about it before. Matt knows about a lot of things. I took Canadian politics in college. <laughs> Matt took I know Canadian all about politics. Tommy Douglas. So, You've gotten so much leverage out of that one, out of that one like, course. I've never yeah. gotten that much leverage out of a single okay, college so, course. Because so people don't take enough dumb classes. <laughs> so I did not realize how controversial Medicare for All was when it launched in Canada and that it almost didn't happen. So when Medicare for All launched in Canada, it started in Saskatchewan, this province, one of the prairie provinces right in the middle of the country. And the doctors went on strike for 23 days. Doctors refused to show up for work there. Um, They had to fly in doctors from Britain. Some people came in from the U.S. It was just this wild situation where it was quite controversial when it launched. It, it almost didn't get off the ground, but the government really wouldn't blink. And eventually doctors needed to get paid and they went back to work. And within a decade, the rest of Canada had Medicare for all. And it was just a really interesting reminder to me, like Medicare for all is hard. Like it would be very, very difficult so wait, to implement. I, to the I US. think we, we need to explain yes. more, more, more context sure. here, right? Okay. So something you often hear about Medicare for all is that Medicare for All will actually save money, right? Um, which, you know, I think is true under some descriptions of it. Another thing you hear about Medicare for All is that one reason that it will save money is that it will cut down on administrative burdens, which I think is also true. But the, like, bigger, truer thing, if you have read anything Sarah has ever written about anything, is that the way these universal systems save money is that they pay lower prices for things. You are creating a single purchaser and a unified pricing scale. And this is contrary to the interests, yes, of insurance companies, but also of a wide range of stakeholders in the system. And that's what happened in Saskatchewan, right? That like doctors did not view this as oh, good, I am a vendor of medical services, and now the government is promising to buy medical services for everyone, so I will win. They said, aha, the government is going to step in. There's going to be a comprehensive system of price controls. It's going to be terrible for us. The same reason the American Medical Association opposed Medicare in the U.S., which oh, is, and they were opposing the Saskatchewan thing. Right, they were sending money right, to Saskatchewan right, to like lobby right. against. So, so, all so this. right. So this was all happening in parallel, right? This yes. is 1962. So the United States has no Medicare for senior citizens, right. and Canada is not the paradise of single payer. And there's link debates north and south of the border. What should we do about this? The Medicare concept that was very live in the United States, like JFK was a proponent of Medicare for senior citizens. And Tommy Douglas, the premier in in Saskatchewan, is saying like, yeah, we're going to create this here. And so it's like a big clusterfuck, right? Like the um, U.S. doctors, doctors from all over Canada want to prove the point that like this will fail, that we cannot have this government takeover of medicine, and that's why they go on strike. Yes, and the parallels between then and now is something I was really struck by researching this. So you see like the Canadian Medical Association, the Saskatchewan Medical Association, the arguments they were making in 1962, government takeover of healthcare, rationing, you know, the government's going to tell you where you can go to the doctor. It is an incredibly parallel um, debate to what we're having right here. And it gets super heated. Um, there's this rally that happens where people are literally burning effigies of um, of Tommy. And these are, like, you know, you know, Canadians are like typically a mild-mannered people. They are burning <laughs> effigies of Tommy Douglas, their premier, while they're rallying outside of the provincial capital. And so I guess there's two things I think about coming out of this. One is that it's never easy to transition uh, to a system, a new healthcare system. I don't think that makes it impossible. I think there is like, you know, 
this idea of Medicare is an impossible dream. I don't really think that's true. I think like if you have the, the thing I learned from Canada is like if you have some politicians with some backbone and you know have a program that ultimately at the end of the day people do like getting medical medical care through you can make this happen. On the other hand, you know, something we were chatting about before, I don't know if that is true right now in like the Fox News era. Like I can oh, imagine you're taking, taking this, my points. This, yeah, oh, sorry. <laughs> I, I'm stealing Ezra's points to be clear from things he said to me on Slack earlier. But I think you raised a good point of what would this look like? What would this doctor strike look like in the Twitter era, the, in the Fox News era? There was a news story that did circulate during the doctor strike of this baby who died um, during the doctor strike. And it was very unclear, was this the result of the strike? Was this something that would have happened? Um, otherwise, that story, how that would play out right now, I, I imagine could be quite different than how it could in like how media worked in Saskatchewan in 1962. Yeah, I mean, something you say in the piece is that the doctor strikes, um, while they were meant to be a big deal, did not actually get the turnout they needed. And, and the turnout began like weakening pretty quickly. But if you had Fox News covering them 24-7 and like right-wing talk radio covering them 24-7, I mean, think back to the Tea Party protests during the the effort to pass the Affordable Care Act. I mean, and now like amplify that times 10,000 because you'd actually be making much, much larger changes. The other thing I think about with all this is that I, I haven't gone back and looked. I'm not even sure if this data is available, but I would guess that in 1962, healthcare is two, three percentage points of Canadian GDP, something like that, maybe lower. Um, like healthcare was just a lot cheaper then. And so the amount of industry around it was a lot lower, right? The pharmaceutical industry was not nearly as big because there just weren't as many pharmaceuticals. The medical device industry wasn't nearly sure. as big and powerful right. because there wasn't Fewer than as half many of people devices. had health insurance. Right. So that's another big difference. In a, in America, in part because we've like totally failed to control costs, um, I'm doing this from memory, so I might have the percentage slightly wrong, but it's roughly 17 percentage points of GDP. It's up to 18. It's huge. Huh? It's up to 18 now. 18. It's up to 18. Okay, there you go. And so like that is a lot of, of industry stakeholder opposition. That's a lot of just like people who are affected by it in some way or another. And then we have this like more divided political system. Uh, you, we have um, a media that is much more conflictual in the way it approaches things. So I don't think it is. It is by no means conceptually impossible for us to move to something uh, to, to a much different healthcare program. And, you know, a point people often make in the Green New Deal context is that if when we have had to mobilize for, say, war, it turns out we can do a lot. Um, but in order to do a lot, you need enough consensus to do a lot. And, and that's the hard thing. We have a much more we both have uh, an array of interests that are, are going to fight that consensus more heavily because more of them are implicated if it, if it actually happened and would lose under it. But then we also have just a political system and culture that is much more about escalating conflict and is much more effective in escalating conflict than, than was true then. So again, I don't want to say you can't do it. And in fact, I think this is why transition plans are really important. Um, we should talk another day. I think Bernie Sanders has in some ways an interesting one, but I also think things like Medicare for America are a very interesting idea of how you would do that. Uh, but but nevertheless, it's possible, but it would be hard. It would be really, really hard in a way that I don't think anybody has a real theory of the political economy yet. So I think it's useful to clarify what the electoral and political context for this was, right? And this is so in Canada, um, in the province of Saskatchewan has a party called the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation. There's a left-wing party 
There was a two-party system, and then this was a left-wing third party. They win power in Saskatchewan in 1944. They then hold power at the provincial level across like a variety of elections, right? So this is the equivalent of not like Bernie Sanders winning a Senate election in Vermont, but like Bernie Sanders as an independent democratic socialist getting elected governor of Vermont and then having a co-party that has a majority in the state legislatures, right, and governs very successfully for over a decade, being popular, re-elected, re-elected, re-elected. In the election of 1960, the, the conservative party, right, the sort of equivalent of Republicans there, wins zero seats in the legislature. This is about two-thirds for the CCF and about one-third for the liberals, who are like a center, center-left. You know, you could think of them as like, like moderate Democrats, right? So, Obviously, if the outcome of the 2020 election is that two-thirds of the Senate seats are held by independent Democratic socialists and all the rest are held by Democrats and there are zero Republicans elected, uh, the the scope for policymaking becomes quite wide in that scenario. Um, but it's not going to happen for fairly obvious reasons. And more importantly, that's not even what happened in Canada, right? What happened is that the left-wing party took over one province, right? And Saskatchewan is now a more conservative, you know, politics shift. But this was an unusually left-wing province, right? And what they did was they won power there in this unusually left-wing place, and they put this system in place there, and it was hard, right? The transition issues were hard, but the political will was there. And, and to me, that still remains a viable path for the United States, right? There was a push to do this in Vermont, and it didn't work. They 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 lost sort of nerve. But we have a lot of states in America. Can Gavin Newsom be America's Tommy Douglas? Right. I mean, I mean, Gavin Newsom won't be America's Tommy Douglas, but I, I, I think- Why? He's going to push single payer in a big liberal state. Yeah, maybe, right. But I mean, he could. I, I, I just think that that aspect of the process of change is what's sort of gone- missing from a lot of this, right? Like, it's not that you're going to state by state do ambitious progressive reforms, but you would expect to see some state that is considerably more left-wing in the underlying distribution of public opinion that has stronger than usual labor movement, has a weaker than usual institutional Republican party to go do some of this kind of stuff and make it work, right? right? Th that takes some of the barriers down. And there are state-level single-payer bills, and there's some specific impediments, you know, that, that relate to the presidency and stuff like that. But to me, like, if you really want to see these big reforms happen, like, you need to organize at the state level, not because it's inherently more virtuous, but because, like, there are Saskatchewan's out there where, like, ideas that are not going to fly nationally, like you could do in Hawaii or Washington or California or, or Vermont or someplace like that. And last Canadian politics note, after this very long reign in office, the CCF lost power in the 1964 election. So like the basic thing where like you go do crazy stuff and then everyone freaks out and throws you out of office, like that continued to hold there, even though this was a successful idea and obviously has been copied and now is nationwide in Canada. Like it's a like it's a big political risk. But the other lesson I take from like both Saskatchewan and the ACA, and I think you're right when I've talked to some historians of Canadian healthcare, you know, one of the things they point out is like this would have not happened. This would have never started at a national level in Canada. Like you needed to see it roll like the 
opposition from the Canadian Medical Association, all of that would have been much too strong. The political consensus wasn't nearly as strong as it was in Saskatchewan. But I think one of the things that's really striking to me from both Canada and from the history of the Affordable Care Act is like, once you get it to work in one state, yeah. the path towards a national plan, it seems to be pretty quick. Like within a, you know, and you didn't have these doctor strikes in any of the other provinces. Right. Within a decade of the Saskatchewan plan rolling out and this doctor strike, you had this program all across Canada. Within what, like um, five years of Massachusetts doing Romney care, you had Obamacare. Right. You know, once these things like find a beachhead, they seem to like become pretty entrenched pretty quickly. And I think that is why you saw, you know, the American Medical Association going into Saskatchewan, like, you know, opposing this because they really did see the writing on the wall a little bit that like if this can prove successful in one province, in one state, it, it can really be it can spread very quickly and things can go from controversial to status quo at a pretty rapid clip once they take hold. Yeah, and I, I think as the final, as one just last postscript on this, it's in your story, Sarah, Canada a couple of years ago had a poll for the most admired Canadian. And it wasn't, you know, a hockey player or it was Tommy Douglas. And yes. they have four-hour biopics of him that run on television. And so, I mean, it was controversial at the time and doctors burned effigies of him. But, uh, you know, and and you have this great quote in the story that when the thing actually passed, you're quoting here Greg uh, March Marchilden? Marchilden? Yeah, yeah. He's at um, University of um, Toronto. He says, you know, the doctors were totally against it and half the population was totally against it. So it could have gone either way. But but now the whole population is more or less for it. And Tommy Douglas is the most admired uh, Canadian in history. He's also Kiefer Sutherland's grandfather, yes. I believe. There's a fun fact for everyone. What a life. What a life he's led. <laughs> Maybe that's why he's the most admired Canadian, though. The, the, the poll didn't have enough data to, to separate those hypotheses. Yeah, a lot of 24 fans. All right. Should we? Um, <laughs> okay. Break. We white break, paper. White paper. Okay. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We're going we're gonna to stick with our healthcare themes, and we're going to talk about this cool white paper that was sent to me via Twitter called um, Job Locked and Unloaded, the Effect of the Affordable Care Act Dependency Mandate on Re-Enlistment in the U.S. Army. Um, this comes Sarah, to- could you explain the, the um, punctuation of that headline? That okay. There's a lot of parentheses. There's a lot of brackets. It's, conclu- it's confusing if you can't see it. Okay. It's brackets job, unbrackets, locked brackets un unbrackets loaded so it's a play on locked and loaded but it's also about job lock is what what's going on in the title of this white paper 
Um, this comes to us from West Point in the U.S. Army, Michael Kofed and Wyatt Fraser. It is a rare case of U.S. administrative data. It is. So so we talk a lot about Swedish administrative data, but they use um, Army reenlistment data as actually a really cool, interesting way to look at the effects of the Affordable Care Act's mandate that ensures cover dependence up to age 26. So this is one of the most popular parts of the Affordable Care Act. I never really thought of this in the job lock context. I usually used to think of the entire ACA as trying to alleviate job lock. And, you know, what I mean by that is people staying in their jobs just to get health insurance. But what they do, one of the things I think is just coolest about this is the study design, where they look at the fact that beginning a few years ago, insurers were required to cover dependents up to 26. So that meant for young adults, anyone under 26, you might have less of a reason to go out and find a job. Maybe you could stay in higher education. Maybe you would do an internship. Health insurance would probably be less of a deciding factor in whether or not to seek full-time employment. Um, So they look at a particular type of full-time employment, um, which is serving in the U.S. Army. Are people less interested to serve in the U.S. Army to reenlist when they have this outside offer of health insurance? And they find, yes, that they estimate that— 3,255 soldiers left the Army when given access to their parents' insurance through the Affordable Care Act, and that works out to a 3.13% reduction in reenlistment. And they do all this by kind of like looking through reenlistment data for young adults who are just younger than 26 and those who are just older. And one of the things they also are able to do is use administrative data on the post-9-11 GI Bill, which lets um, vets enroll in college education. And what they find is that the younger vets with access to their parents' insurance, they are more likely to use those benefits. So the suggestion from this paper is some young adults who might have – that health insurance is weighing on the minds of young adults who are reenlisting in the Army and that – some of the young adults who are choosing not to reenlist are going off to seek higher education. So this seems maybe bad for the Army. They might have to work harder to recruit when health insurance is less of a exciting benefit. Um, but it generally seems good for these young adults who, you know, with that motivation of health insurance being a little less strong, seem to be going off to pursue Secondary education. Yeah, you know, one of, there are two things here that I thought were interesting. One is that it's not a huge, it's not a huge effect, but they're also not looking at a huge policy. I mean, they're they're yeah. really just focusing on that dependent coverage. And again, they're looking at twenty three to twenty five year olds. So you're a twenty five year old. You have the option to be on your parents' coverage until you're twenty six. Like it's not. It's not an offer of free health care for the rest of your life, and it's still having some significant effect. We, we've seen some other stuff around this. I mean, something you can also do is reduce labor supply because people who are continuing working when they're 57 or 64, you know, or, or 62 rather, can retire a little bit earlier. Um, and, and sometimes you'll see people say um, that makes health care like, you know, hurt the employment market. But I don't think that's the right way to think about that. So it, it does seem to me that this job lock stuff is really real. And the more you had a simple and clear system, it would it, it would do something to really help it. Um, I wonder what percentage of the population being studied here actually knew about this part of the ACA and also what percentage of their parents had health care that was eligible for them to join it. Because if your parent doesn't is uninsured, you can't join their insurance. So there's like a lot of weird, um, interesting stuff in here, which makes me surprised they honestly found any result at all and implies to me that the, the, the the job block effect, if you were able to make the system clear enough, would be pretty significant. Yeah. So, I mean, just 
methodology note, right? So the point of this study was not exactly to understand military enlistments. It's that, again, because we often talk about Nordic countries' administrative data, because in the U.S., detailed administrative data is not generally available to researchers, right? But the military was able to make this data available to at least a West Point professor, right? And so they can see in great detail, like, exactly how old everybody was, exactly when their re-enlistment dates were, um, all kinds of characteristics about them, including the fact that, you know, if you get seriously ill, you probably have to leave the military, right? So, so they they can control for all this kind of stuff, right, and make for a really good, good survey. And I think for a lot of the reasons Ezra articulates, this is probably a low bound estimate of job locks impact on the civilian labor market. Right. Uh, because well, I mean, one thing to consider about this population, they are probably healthier than the average population yep. because they, you know, they are serving in the military. So you'd expect these health insurance effects to be likely larger. Also younger. By, by, and younger, by definition, yes. this is a younger, yes. healthier, and maler yes. po- group of people than the general population, right? So it's actually the group of people on whom you would expect the employer insurance link to have the weakest impact compared to an older, sicker, more female population. Mm-hmm. I think this is interesting both because so so the Job lock, I think, particularly given that framing, uh, sounds bad to people. It is bad almost by definition to be locked in your job. Uh, But often when a reduction of job lock is translated into a CBO score, uh, it winds up sounding different to people, right? So very famously, the Affordable Care Act was at least forecast to induce Uh, a non-trivial number of people in their late 50s and early 60s to retire early rather than continuing to work until Medicare eligibility date. Um, This was characterized by the Congressional Budget Office as decreasing employment, um, which was then characterized by Republican Party members of Congress as the ACA was going to kill X million jobs, right? I mean, I don't know. It's something to think about substantively and also something to think about politically, right? Because one thing people say is, well, right now, most of us are paying like a kind of tax for our health care because we're accepting reduced wages, we're paying premiums. Under uh, single payer, it's not going to be that big of a difference, right, for insured people. Like, you'll get insurance, you'll pay taxes, it's fine. But one big difference is that you have to work for your employer-based insurance. And when you give everyone a guarantee of coverage, whether or not you have a job, that does at the margin induce people to not work, right? And now you can say to yourself, like, who's going to just quit their job and not work because you have health insurance? And like, obviously, I, 38-year-old dad, am like not going to do that. But you have all these people at the margins of the labor market, right? They are in their late 50s or early 60s and might retire. They are young and might go to school. Uh, They might be uh, mothers of young kids who might stay home. And you have a real impact on that. And I think to sell this kind of program, you have to be willing to argue that that is a good thing, right? right? That like this reduction in the size, a voluntary reduction in the size of the labor force induced by guaranteed provision of health insurance should be considered a benefit of the program rather than a cost because the CBO will call it a cost. Right. And this is a place where when I've done interviews with legislators that I find we end up in like some weird circles where they talk about the benefits of reducing job lock, right? Like they talk very positively right. 
about, um, you know, people won't be stuck in jobs they don't want to be. They can go out and be entrepreneurs. But right. then if, you get if you assume the typical voluntary job lever is going to go found Google, yes. then like it's it's great. But then but you like... get into like questions of like, well, are you OK with them just not working? Like right. what if my mom who's, you know, a teacher just wants to retire a few years early and see her grandson more? Right. And then it's like like then like the answers get a little murkier. Um, I think what we are seeing, though, like the thing we're getting evidence for in this paper is that these things do matter to people, even in a population that probably is likely to value health insurance significantly less than the overall population, that these effects are real and they have trade-offs. Like this paper suggests that fewer people re-enlisted in the military as a part of that. And like maybe if you're really caring about military enlistment, like you want health insurance as an in- inducement to participate. But um, I think the thing this drives home through for me through this use of administrative data is that these effects are significant and they are real. And like we could have a real debate about what role we want health insurance to play in its relationship to work, which I think is a debate we're having right now through these new work requirements in Medicare. But I think it's a place where you have like a sharp, sharp, sharp divide between the two political parties on like should health insurance be an inducement to work and some really different views that that like are pretty revealing about what people value. So American administrative data. So I hope that if you guys have, uh, you know, time to not work, you spend it all listening to Vox Media Network podcasts, uh, hopping in, hopping into the Weeds Facebook group. I'm sure we'll get some corrections about our Canadian political history, and I am welcome and, and open to them. Uh, so so please let us know. Uh, we need to know all about it. Really glad to have Ezra back here on the show. Uh, thanks to, to you for, uh, for calling in. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And the Weeds will return on Tuesday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.